The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. No Restraint Podcast. I've got two very different subjects I want to talk about. Not sure I'll get to both of them, but I'm going to start with the matter of firearms. Everybody knows that I'm a Second Amendment advocate. I believe in the right to preserve and protect one's family, one's person, and one's community. And that means the only control I want to hear about guns is the control that you exert over your trigger. There was a four-part series that was appearing in Concealed Carry magazine, and the first two episodes really triggered something inside of me. As many of you know, I go into the jails where I live, and I deal with women who have been incarcerated for a variety of different crimes, and quite often the crime is a result of domestic abuse, whether it results in them actually murdering their partner or something less dramatic, inevitably, self-defense is a reaction that women have to abuse. So I was looking at some of these series and what they had to say about it, and I thought I would share that with you because it's important. There are a lot of different opinions, and particularly from domestic abuse and domestic violence organizations The academics think one thing, politicians think something else, lawyers and firearms instructors all think something else about the role of firearms in protecting domestic abuse victims. So let me tell you a story. A woman named Sabrina Henley had just been forced to shoot her husband. He staggers backwards into the bathroom and collapses. She freezes and he begins to crawl back into the bedroom. But quickly, she comes to her senses, and she frantically did her best to stop the bleeding and perform some rudimentary first aid. Hendley's father, Mike Irwin, came into the room, and together they elevated her partner's feet. Hendley said she talked to her husband and tried to calm him down, telling him that everything would be okay. He looked at her and simply said, you shot me. At some point, deputies from the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office arrived at the Henleys' home on Englecrest Drive. They told Henley to back away from her husband, which she was reluctant to do because the paramedics had not yet arrived. One deputy asked her why she had shot him. Not in her right mind, Henley answered something to the effect of, because he's an asshole. Henley said her husband was aggressive with the paramedics when they arrived on the scene, which puzzled her because he hadn't been that way with her when she was administering aid. The deputies placed her in handcuffs and put her in the back of a cruiser. Still in shock, she mused aloud to a female deputy, I don't understand why he wouldn't apologize. The deputies delivered Henley to the sheriff's office in her bikini, though she was given some paper clothing for the interview that lasted into the early hours of the next morning. It wasn't until after the interview that she was told her husband had passed away at a local hospital. 
Sabrina Henley was now facing a charge of first-degree murder. Domestic violence organizations and shelters mean well, and they do incredible work. But almost all of them recommend that women who are in abusive relationships not turn to guns for self-defense. When I think about this and when I ask questions of the women I know who carry, I also asked some questions of shelter operators, and I couldn't find many who were willing to go on the record. And maybe there's a good reason for this. But one academic, Susan Sorensen, has happily shared her views. If you want to look at it from a science perspective, there's no evidence that bringing a firearm into a volatile situation will improve things, said the University of Pennsylvania professor. Sorensen has an interdisciplinary background in epidemiology, sociology, and psychology, and teaches a graduate course in family and sexual violence. She stated that one reason firearms aren't effective in domestic situations is that an abused woman is unlikely to pull a trigger on someone she knows. Most people have a hard time shooting another human being, she said, especially when it comes to a loved one. Most people who have been abused do deeply care about the person who abuses them, she continued. They want the abuse to stop. Instead of reaching for a firearm, Sorensen reasoned, women should pay close attention to situations that make them feel unsafe, follow their instincts, and potentially avoid such end-of-the-line options in the first place. We train our girls to be polite, she declared, and to try not to hurt somebody else's feelings. And this includes overriding their own sense of when they're not safe. Most of us have been raised with a fairly good gut sense to tell us when we're at risk, she explained. And it's when we override that, we risk our own safety. Sorensen indicated that women are more likely, more than twice as likely, to be murdered by a male intimate with a gun than they are to be shot, stabbed, strangled, bludgeoned to death, or killed in any other way by a stranger. And so that's very powerful information, she says. So it's an issue of keeping guns out of the hands of abusers. A gun in the home also makes suicide more likely, she said, when a victim of domestic abuse or domestic violence sees no other way out. In an email that she sent to the interviewer, Dr. Sorensen summed up her thoughts like this. I'm not pro-gun or anti-gun. I'm in favor of women being safe. And as a researcher, I go where the data sends me. If we had good studies that show that a firearm makes women safer, I'd recommend that we increase firearms access. But that's not what the science shows. In fact, we have decades of research that shows it is associated with increased risk of homicide and suicide for women. Are those stats valid, though? Sorensen's thoughts on the matter are largely echoed by domestic violence organizations and shelters. Both tend to push ominous-sounding statistics in interviews and in their own online resources. For example, here's an excerpt from one highly regarded source. Here at the National Domestic Violence Hotline, we know that the presence of a gun in the home increases the risk of homicide for women by 500%. It's important to note that this risk doesn't only apply to women. Anyone can be in serious danger if their abusive partner has a gun. Additionally, research shows that previous abuse in a relationship 
is the greatest determining factor in murder-suicides. These increased risks are some of the reasons we do not advocate for survivors of domestic violence to purchase a gun. This statistic, women are 500% more at risk of homicide if there is a gun in the home, is presented as unassailable. But is it? This statistic and others like it come from observational studies conducted by researchers in the social sciences. In a typical drug study, by way of comparison, researchers will start with a population, designate a control group, and give the medication in question to a study group. More likely than not, the study will be double-blind, meaning that neither the participants nor the researchers know which treatment or intervention the participants are receiving until the clinical trial is over. This makes the results of the study less likely to be biased and ensures that the results are less likely to be affected by factors that are not related to the treatment or the intervention being tested. However, the observational studies that comprise the majority of the research in domestic violence and firearms are case control studies, where the case study group is chosen because they already possess the attribute of interest. And that may seem like nitpicking to you, but it's an important distinction since it opens up the door for all manner of confounding variables. Bearing that in mind, let's take a closer look at the study behind the National Domestic Violence Hotline statistic taken from a 2003 article published in the American Journal of Public Health. The findings included a five-fold increase in intimate partner femicide risk associated with abusers' access to firearms. The study also found that significant incident factors included the victim having left for another partner and that a victim's risk of being killed by her intimate partner was lower when she lived apart from her abuser and had sole access to a firearm. A perusal of the study raises many issues, mainly with the control group. For instance, in the study, the women in the control group were picked based on self-reported criteria of abuse. Self-reported studies may have some validity problems. The definition of abuse was particularly broad. A woman was considered abused if she had been physically assaulted or threatened with a weapon by a current or former intimate partner during the previous two years. Like anything else, physical assault falls on a spectrum. Both a shove and beating someone nearly to death constitute physical assault. Thirteen women were inexplicably removed from the control group because they reported abuse so severe they thought they could have died. Isn't this what the authors were looking for? The authors state that only 10% of the women in their control group were physically abused. There are dissimilarities between the control and study groups in terms of race, education, employment, and income for both the victims and the perpetrators. There are also differences in alcohol and drug use. The data used for the study is fairly dated, having been gathered between 1994 and 2000. One could make the argument that times have changed and that more women are familiar with and trained in the use of firearms based on an increased representation in the trigger sports. Other commonly cited studies in this space have similar issues with questions regarding controls and relying on relatively old data. 
To the credit of the academics who conducted the studies, many include important caveats that are rarely carried forward by the domestic violence organizations in search of damning statistics. One study found elevated risk of female homicide with a handgun purchase in 1991. However, the control group was simply all adults in California between 1991 and 1996. An obvious confounding variable is that a significant percentage of those women likely purchased a weapon because they already feared for their lives, which would be a very different level of risk that found among Californians in general. Another study found that the guns kept in the home are associated with an increase in the risk of homicide by a family member or intimate acquaintance. But its authors made no bones about its potential shortcomings, stating that if case proxies or controls selectively withheld sensitive information about illicit drug use, alcoholism, or violence in the home, inaccurate estimates of risk could result. The rate of domestic violence reported by our control respondents was somewhat less than that noted in a large telephone survey. Underreporting of gun ownership by control respondents could bias our estimate of risk upward. It is possible that reverse causation accounted for some of the association we observed between gun ownership and homicide. For example, in a limited number of cases, people may have acquired a gun in response to a specific threat. If the source of that threat subsequently caused the homicide, the link between guns in the home and homicide may be due, at least in part, to the failure of these weapons to provide adequate protection from the assailants. In summary, many, if not most, of the anti-gun statistics put forth by domestic violence organizations are not as straightforward as they've been made out to be. And these organizations largely advise against victims getting armed and trained in favor of disarming abusers. The flip side of taking guns out of the hands of abusers is evident in the case of Carol Brown, a New Jersey hairdresser who was being stalked by an ex-boyfriend in 2015. It's an example of a state government doing its level best to keep guns out of the hands of its citizens and with tragic consequences. On April 21st of that year, Bone, in fear for her life, applied for a permit that would allow her to purchase a handgun. State criminal code mandates that such permits be granted or denied within 30 days. She was still waiting when the ex-boyfriend, Michael Atel, stabbed her to death outside her home on June 3rd. New Jersey laws are designed to protect the public from law-abiding citizens, said Scott Bach, the executive director of the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs. It's backward, and in this case, the state didn't even follow its own absurd rules. Indeed, reports suggest that the township police department had yet to receive the results of Bounds' fingerprinting. Two days before her murder, she had gone in to check on the progress of her application. Now, if she had a firearm, does it guarantee that she'd be alive today? No, but it would have guaranteed that she had a fighting chance, and that's true for anybody. 2,000 miles away from New Jersey in the state of Utah, they take the opposite tack and try to protect their citizens from criminals. In 2019, 
Republican Governor Gary Herbert signed House Bill 243 into law, allowing domestic violence victims with an approved protective order to carry concealed without a permit. Republican Representative Christine Watkins sponsored the legislation. She said it was partially in response to abusers preemptively getting restraining orders against their victims, stripping them of their gun rights. It can still be done now, Watkins said. Say they beat you up, but you try to stop them and you hit them. They can run right to the courts and get a restraining order and claim you're the abuser. It's a real nightmare. Watkins explained that abusers learn about this loophole and use it to turn the law against the victims. For instance, a young woman she worked with was thrown in jail because she shut the door on the arm of a former boyfriend who was attempting to enter her home to harass her. Fortunately, a judge had the sense to have her released. While a step in the right direction at the time, the legislation was made unnecessary in 2021 when Utah became the 17th state to legalize permitless carry. And by the way, as Floridians, we have joined that group. We were losing women, Watkins declared. We still are. It's not just Utah. It's nationwide. But to me, the Second Amendment says you can protect yourself. And I don't care what anybody says. That's really important. Of course, taking guns away from abusers is not necessarily a bad idea. But as with anything, there are downsides. It can be complicated and a lengthy process, and victims are dependent on the courts and law enforcement agencies to do their jobs in a timely and efficient manner. It can happen in a handful of different ways, said Wisconsin-based attorney Tom Grieve. One way is if a victim reaches out to law enforcement. There's an arrest involved, and the aggressor is placed on some sort of bail that will restrict them from the possession of firearms. Another tool on the civil side, he said, is the domestic abuse injunction referenced in 18 United States Code Section 922 G9. If a petitioner successfully pleads the case in court, a judge could order the aggressor to turn over any weapons. A third option, Grieve stated, would be involuntary commitment for mental illness. Maybe they themselves are suicidal, he said. Maybe they have a history of self-harm. Why is any of that relevant? Because perhaps they could be chaptered under their state's laws for mental incapacity. When it comes to the arguments against victims of domestic violence getting armed and trained, Seattle area attorney William Kirk summed them up nicely on his website's blog. Namely, he states that women will be unable to pull the trigger in self-defense and that a woman will likely have her firearm taken away and used against her. However, these opinions are based upon one premise, he wrote, which is that women are incapable or not as capable of using a firearm as their male counterparts. A gun is just as lethal in the hands of a trained female as it is in the hands of a trained male, Kirk declared. The key factors being proficiency and familiarity with the firearm in question. It's a very valuable tool in protecting yourself and your family. And there's a biological instinct that goes with that because there is a mama bear instinct and it's real and it's true and God bless it because we all need it. To address the training aspect of this issue, 
I spoke with a famed instructor, Masad Ayub, and the Illinois Carry spokesperson, Valinda Rowe. Both are fed up with the notion that women are less capable than men when it comes to armed self-defense. I've heard this myth repeated over and over and over again throughout the years, Rose said, and frankly, I find it insulting. But I think it's being dispelled by the number of women today who train in firearm self-defense and who carry every day. Ayub indicated that the arguments against these women getting armed and trained are sexist and outdated, analogous to the cartoon character Blondie jumping up on a stool and shrieking at the sight of a mouse. For one thing, women have fewer illusions about being able to handle anything that comes their way, he stated. They know darn well that they're particularly disadvantaged and are probably, if anything, less likely to hesitate. Rowe, who's a well-known instructor herself, said that many of the women she deals with at the range have an initial fear of firearms, something she can relate to having grown up in a household without guns. She helps these women move past their hesitancy by teaching them the basic rules of firearm safety. This was indeed my experience, and I am a huge advocate for proper training. She said, we practice the firearm safety rules with unloaded or dummy firearms extensively, and they must be able to demonstrate these safety rules before we ever get to the firing line. So that's part of what I would call the physical and mental preparation before we ever get to actually firing a live round. That's certainly how my training was handled, and so many of the women I know who trained at Gun World of South Florida with Florida Firearms Training. There's equally practical advice in terms of preparation. It's imperative for a woman to get a firearm that she's able to physically manipulate. With a semi-automatic, make sure she can run the slide. With a double-action revolver, make sure she can run the trigger. Get the gun to fit the hand. Get the holster to fit the body. 90-plus percent of guns were designed by males for males with average-sized adult male hands. Rowe noted that women's oftentimes have more difficulty carrying concealed because of the variety of clothing styles they wear. This is unlike most men who tend to wear similar outfits every day. And so we urge women and we encourage them to practice drawing from lots of different types of clothing so that they're prepared if they find themselves in an emergency. Rowe also mentions the importance of firearms retention in the context of defending against a domestic abuser. A good firearm self-defense class is going to cover different retention techniques so that someone cannot take your firearm away from you. And I encourage women to learn as many of those techniques as they can. They were particularly valuable for me in an instance. And then paramount, mental preparedness. Don't draw if you're not prepared to use it. Everyone echoes those sentiments and said that someone who can't pull the trigger has a gun waiting to be taken away. He also says that a man who has successfully victimized a woman in the past might not be deterred by the presentation of a firearm. He has become overconfident and emboldened. He also discussed the legal concept of disparity of force. It is something frequently left out of concealed carry courses and a concept of which many attorneys don't seem to be aware. 
Disparity of force means that the opponent is ostensibly unarmed, he indicated, but his physical advantages over you are so great that in a violent physical attack, the likelihood of you being killed or crippled if the attack continues, it becomes the equivalent of facing someone with a deadly weapon. As a result, the disparity of force legally warrants you being allowed to defend yourself with a deadly weapon such as a gun. If you look every year at the FBI homicide stats, more people are murdered with bare hands and stomping feet than are killed with all the rifles that are ever used. Examples of disparity of force include able-bodied versus disabled, multiple attackers versus a single victim, and male against female. The law recognizes the male of the species tends to have greater size, greater strength, and more of a cultural predisposition for violence. There's no varsity female tackle football. Of course, now that we've confused genders to the extent that we have, I'm not sure any of this holds true. When it comes to a woman keeping her firearms and ammunition away from her live-in abuser, it is important that that become a high priority. Absent that, technological advances do make things a little bit easier. There are a lot of safes on the market today. I own a Liberty safe, and they were not available just a few years ago. They can be programmed to open at the touch of your hand or your fingerprint, and only your hand or your fingerprint. Your firearm can be loaded and ready to use and access very quickly in an emergency. Women should ignore the critics who say that they can't protect themselves because they're women. At the end of the day, the decision of whether or not to get armed and trained in a personal way is a personal choice. Don't make the decision out of fear. Get the knowledge, take the training, learn what it means to be a responsible gun owner, learn how to safely handle a firearm, and then make that informed decision. Meanwhile, back in Florida, Henley would spend the next 30 days in solitary confinement at the Hillsborough County Jail. Initially, because of the first-degree murder charge, she was held without bond. Adding to her humiliation, a local newspaper headline suggested that she shot her husband simply because he wouldn't apologize. She was allowed out of her cell for one hour each day. She usually spent the time meeting with her father. She worried about how he and her two girls were doing. In turn, he revealed to his daughter that a local victim advocate, Julie Weintraub, had become interested in her case. Let me tell you something, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. While this No Restraint podcast ran a little long and I didn't get to talk about the college kids who unionized Amazon, I'll do that at a later date, this podcast may seem to you like it is for women but it's not. It's for the people who love women. It's for husbands. It's for fathers. It's for brothers. You know, as well as I do, that family members often are the first to know about domestic abuse and violence, and oftentimes they don't know what to do. And I'm telling you, gentlemen, that it's your responsibility, if you know someone you love is in peril, to help them to get the tools that they need to protect themselves, whether that's a restraining order, whether it's moving away, or whether it's teaching them how to own and safely operate a firearm. That's on you guys, 
So don't just slough off this No Restraint podcast and say, well, gee, Joyce seems to only be talking to the ladies. No, ladies, I know you heard me. I hope the guys in your life heard me as well. Thank you for listening to this No Restraint podcast. A new one will be coming up, and I will get to the Amazon Union story one of these days. In the meantime, be safe. If you're a firearm owner, have a safe. I'll see you soon. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.